Okay. Hello, you awesome people. Thank you for being here. You're a wonderful, faithful bunch. <clears throat> um, Barbara's apparently still in hospital. So I just remember her and I'm just saying how wonderful this gang are for being so good and visiting and it's great. It's, what? You're old school, this <laughs> I just think it's great. It's wonderful. Um, okay, so we're going to get straight on with it uh, tonight. You've got me and, uh, you know, there'll be people listening online. We've just uh, aliens on there and so say hi to Eileen in uh, New Zealand and a few more. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm really quite croaky, but I'll soon get over it. Um, when Antha brought a couple of weeks ago, he talked about pilgrimage and uh, very much was creating the case for where we have gone as a house. Um, and especially since, um, well, not especially since we became Q Church, but Q Church was certainly more of the establishing of what we'd become um, as part, you know, from the journey that we've gone. Uh, but he talked about pilgrimage and also when he spoke on Sunday about the problem with naming God, <coughs> I just felt that something sort of went off in my spirit and there were things that I, were re I was reading and things that uh, I was thinking about. And uh, as I tell you regularly, God's in the shower <laughs> and as the water is running, I'm hearing things and things are coming to me. And I just felt that I needed to say, look, I'll, I'll do Wednesday. Now, I just want to be very clear at the beginning. Some of the things I say uh, and doesn't necessarily agree with me, and that's okay. Just remember that it's okay. Um, just as you sit out there and don't necessarily agree with some of the things uh, that, that we say, that's, that's what we're about. That's what pilgrimage is, because it's constantly asking the questions, seeking for truth, um, because we're not going to settle um, for just swallowing what people tell you anymore. We're, we're going to have the real thing, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. Um, so I want to look at, uh, basically, the, the title I've given it is Unboxing God. And we're going to talk about how religious systems can become God rather than just pointing us to God. Now, I'll say that again because I think that's probably one of the most important things I will say, that how religious systems can become God rather than just pointing us to God, who we learnt on Sunday uh, is the I am, and I prefer to uh, sort of call it because just recently I've, I have taken more to looking at God as an, an energy, more of a verb than a noun. Um, and I like to use the word the divine presence. And I think that's an incredible um, name. But of course, uh, we don't want to get into naming things so much that we end up in the same uh, problem. Because once you start naming things like we were talking on uh, Sunday, it can become a problem. But I like the I am, because it's very present, and uh, I like the divine presence, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. Um, I was looking just uh, uh, on Facebook, and suddenly somebody had put up a post, and it was G-O-D, you know, the word God, 
made into one of those things where you put words across and it said get over defining I was blown away because you know I hadn't gone looking for that it was just there on on a feed and I thought oh this is interesting and uh, it went on to say we need to come to terms with the slipperiness of concepts because no words have the precision required definitions are fuzzy and they leak and I thought yeah I like that um, you know, rather than seeing everything as so cut and dry and, and, and sealed up and precise, um, uh, that was there. So get over defining. I thought that was a, a wonderful thing to carry on from Sunday. Um, so what I want to start by saying is this, a belief system is often where we, or how we define God. So what we believe ultimately is what equals. So if we did a sum well, I believe this, I believe that, I believe, you know, put it all in a sum. That ultimately defines the God that we have. And yet a belief system isn't God because as we were talking about the I am, the divine presence, I actually believe that that God is in all things and is everywhere and is, is found everywhere, but you can call yourself a Buddhist, you can call yourself a Muslim, you can call yourself a Christian, you can call yourself whatever, and you can actually be witnessing that I am and that divine presence. But equally, you can be all of those things and not witnessing the I am, the divine presence, but that's there for everybody to find at any point and at any time, at anywhere. Do, do you see what, what I'm getting at? Now, Gregory of, of, of Nyssa, which is one of the Christian founding fathers of about three something or other um, AD, he said, every concept of God is a mere simulacrum. Now, that's a word for you, simulacrum. If you want to ever play Scrabble, that's one that we'll have to look for as simulacrum. Um, it just means it's a false likeness, an idol. And it cannot reveal God himself. He said, all Christians must be like Abraham who laid aside all ideas about God and took hold of faith which was unmixed and pure of any concept. Now, I'm not sure whether he's right there about unmixed and pure of any concept because as we know, uh, Abraham came out of the era of the Chaldees and he certainly had some understanding of a God of sorts because they were very much a center of learning and, and, and they worshiped certain gods. So he wasn't free of concepts. But what he's really getting at is that with all that in his mind, he was able to embrace a faith that took him beyond what he'd already been influenced by and basically make the journey to the I am uh, and this divine presence. So, the problem with religion, and you'll know by now that I have a, a big problem with religion, and it's because I was boiled in it, basically, and so that's made me very anti-religion, and I feel that, that I want to help uh, all those who have been affected by that. So even as we speak in tonight, some of you might think what I'm, I have to say, you've heard it before, and you're thinking, well, you've not told me anything new there. But there may be people who click on this out there, you know, in the big, the big world of the internet, 
who need to hear this because they are struggling because of what they've uh, been through. So the problem with religion is it wants to put God in a box. It names it, it defines it, it arrogantly says this is what God wants. And then we worship the theology rather than actually keeping looking uh, for God himself or itself or herself, which we probably need to be more politically correct nowadays uh, with that. That's why, you know, we were saying uh, about the name I am and the divine presence is, is a wonderful uh, encompassing um, way of talking about it. That is, like Anne said on Sunday, is always to all and it's not tribal to some. And if, if you remember anything from Sunday, please keep that in mind, that the I am, the divine presence, is always to all, not tribal to some. And he explained that, but we'll also be talking a bit more about that tonight. So you see, I was raised to believe that the presence, the divine presence, it comes and it goes. Um, when the right atmosphere is created, or if you're worthy enough, or if you're pure enough uh, to deserve the visitation, um, you, you know, you, you created an atmosphere for it by what you did, what you sang, um, how you postured yourself, and sometimes those things are good. Um, or you entered, I mean, have you heard these phrases? We entered the presence of God. As you walk through the door of a church, you were told you were entering the presence of God. What? I mean, nowadays you think, how crazy. But they were the things that we were told. Now, get, get this. I was also told about a guy, or a, it's not really a guy, it's a word. Have you heard the word Ichabod? What does it mean? Come on, what does Ichabod mean? There we go, you see, the Spirit of the Lord has departed. And I remember even once being told by somebody who attended the church and decided to leave, they actually left with these parting words. Ichabod is written over your door. The Spirit of the Lord has departed. Yeah, well, you see, that's how we were, we were raised. So that if you got anything wrong, Ichabod, you see, the Spirit of the Lord has, has departed. Now, you might say, well, we don't live like that anymore. We don't. But there can still be a residue of a belief that says that the presence, the divine presence, the I am, has got to be somehow found and, and sought after. And it's only in certain places rather than understanding, like was said, it's always to all not tribal to some. And when uh, the, 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 uh, um, the Holy Spirit was, said, uh, was released on the day of Pentecost, it said it fell upon all flesh. And that means that it came and it's here and it's not gone anywhere and, and it's still here and it's residing in every one of us. And so that's what we've now come to understand and it's very releasing and it's, it's very uh, powerful to us. Now, at the same time it was preached from the Psalms when David would say, where can I go from your presence, O Lord? So we were told on the one hand we couldn't have it so we had to find it, but then we were told there's no way you can go. You know, if I go up, up to the heights, if I go down into the depths, if I go into hell, you will be there. But then all of a sudden... The presence 
has, has got to be found. So there was quite a lot of um, contradictions were said. So what happened was you could be find the presence, but then you could also lose the presence. And then, of course, if you didn't get it right, there was always that day of reckoning where you were going to lose the presence forever because there was going to be that eternal separation, uh, which was part of the deal. Now, you recall that, right? There's a lot of people who've, who've remember some of that. So Christianity had become as tribal as any other religion. Now, you might say, yes, but... Evangelicalism, surely, isn't the same. And we, we say it can't be because it's based on the words of Jesus and, uh, and the character of Jesus, who is supposed to be, and I only say that because this is what we've, we've been um, led to believe, that he is the exact representation of the Father in the flesh when he appeared through his incarnation 2,000 years ago. Now, I'm going to throw out a challenge, and I really would like some people to take this up. Um, I'd like you to read or start reading the Gospels and find a red letter edition, the ones where the words of Jesus are actually in red, which makes it easy for you to see when Jesus is speaking. Yeah, online you can find them. And the reason why I'm throwing out this challenge is because it's always easy to believe that Jesus has said certain things when he actually hasn't. <laughs> it was actually Paul. And we, it's not that we're not unhappy with Paul, but we've got to make sure that if we're going to attribute things to Jesus, he actually said it. And things that Paul said, remember, Paul was was not doing anything wrong, but he was creating an understanding of what had happened with this phenomenon that had, had taken place of Jesus coming and he, his death and his resurrection, and he's trying to make sense of things, but he was also a Jew. Therefore, he was very colored by his own upbringing and by the things that he'd experienced, and so there's going to be a certain Jewish influence there. So this is my, my challenge. I want you to read uh, the, 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 the words of Jesus and actually start asking some questions about some of the things he said. Because when you look at it at, to that degree, you find that a lot of what has been created to make the gospel message that we know in the West today was actually very, very clearly spoken to those people at the time, to that generation, to those who were in his presence, and very specifically pointing to an event and things that were going to happen in their lifetime. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there isn't parallels and things that we can look future as well with it, but what I'm trying to say is that if we would only look at it and read it with fresh eyes, we actually see that some of the things that we've created and made, for instance, there's a passage in, in Matthew where it talks about, you know, the narrow way that leads to life and the, the, the broad way that leads to destruction. And those two verses, I think it's verse 16 and 17 in Matthew 7, two verses in the middle of a big conversation that's taking place have what has become the basis of our evangelical message and yet when you read it in its context you think 
That could mean all sorts of things. Now, I'm not going to do it now, so forgive me if you're chomping at the bit saying, oh, well, come on, tell me. Maybe as we can talk about that another time. But the truth is, the, 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 the narrow way was, was referring to the, 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 um, uh, the, the law, and the, the, the other way was the two ways. One was the way of the law, the other one was the way of the new covenant, which he was saying, look, one's going to lead to death, the other's going to lead to life. But what we've got is the destruction is now hell and life is now heaven. You see what I'm saying? And I I did that really very quickly just to show you. And I'd really like to say that if we're not careful, so if if I'd written some love letters to Anthem, they've been sealed up and they've got a nice ribbon around them and I've dug, uh, dug a hole and I've buried them in the garden and maybe it's in a thousand years time, somebody is, is renovate, uh, re- excavating my garden and they find them and they start reading them and they're saying, oh, this woman, she loves me. She, oh, she's good. oh, she's going to come and visit me at some point and blah, 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 whatever. What I'm trying to say is if people find those letters and actually start believing that they were written to them, we would say, you're nuts. Are you following me? Now, again, don't get me wrong. There's much that is written for us and to us in that sense that we can use. But if we look, and that's why I'm throwing out the challenge to look at some of the things that Jesus actually said. And what we'll actually find is that they were very specific for that day, for that generation, for that group of people. And yet what happens is religion makes a system out of it. And once there's a system in place, you fear to question it, because if you question it, your identity is then, you know, and your security is, is, is messed up. And so we end up worshipping a system that has been created rather than finding the God that Jesus was pointing to. I, I, is that, was that clear enough? Okay, so is there an overarching and underlying story which I brought up when we were talking about the pilgrimage. Yes, there is. But like I said, it's pointing us to God. It isn't God. Does that make sense? It's not God. It's pointing to God. So there's a lot we could say more about that, but we'll just move on. So why so many religions? I, I, I took, made some notes. So we talked about the denominations, didn't we, in 33,000. Apparently, there's 4,300 religions, 4,300, 75% practice one of the five most influential ones. Um, Why did I say that? I was going to say something about that. But the point is, you can have a look after. When you consider how many there are and the various uh, things, and the, obviously, like we said at the beginning, the, the, the variations of systems that are there, which are, are there to create something for you. So why so many religions? It's because this. And Karl Marx said, said this. He said, religion is the opiate of the masses. Now, that's quite a, a statement. You'll have heard it probably before. What's an opiate? It's a drug. You think, religion, a drug? Yeah, because it's what people want. And what was said about it was it has a practical function in society because it reduces suffering, 
and gives pleasant illusions. In other words, it's an escape. So that's why he said it's, it's an opiate because it's, it's escapism. Something else that a guy called Seneca, I don't know who he is, but I wrote it down. Is re- it, religion is regarded by the common people as true, by the wise as false, and by the rulers as useful. Now that's one, isn't it? Because, you see, the, the rulers understood that if you can get people to fear certain things, you can control and you can direct people the, the way that they want them to go, so it was useful. Another one, the garb of religion is the best cloak of power. It's fabulous, isn't it? A guy called Hazlitt. 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 We like Hazlitt, don't we? Okay, so why? Why are these things said about religion? Is because religion holds two very important cards in its game, and it's this. Number one, there is a God, and religion speaks for him. And we talked about 4,300 different religions. So there is a God, and there might be 4,300. I actually think there's more than that, because I think Hinduism alone... Yeah, that's, that's the, then there's the gods within that, you see. So Hinduism alone has got uh, thousands of gods. Um, there is a God, and religion speaks on his behalf, speaks for him. But you see, what happens with religion, it throws out beliefs and insists that they are answers to your questions when actually they're only beliefs that you can hold, but they're not actually answers. So questions like, why am I here? Or there's there's so many questions that we are looking to be to be answered in life, but in fact they don't answer. The religion doesn't answer those questions. It just pushes out a, a, a list of rules and regulations, which in our minds we believe they've answered the question, but in fact they didn't answer the question at all. So here's the issue: How do we know? out of the 4,300, which is right. I mean, being right matters to us all. It's our, um, oh, it, it's all about identity. Forget about just religion, but don't we want to be right? We, we want to be right. We want to feel confident. We want to feel that we know what we're doing. Um, and if our creed or whatever it is that we've attached ourselves to, if it lacks uh, validity then we, we just feel that, that our confidence is, is shaken. So what we tend to do is find very long-established religions that have been around for a very long time, and we put our trust in them because we think they are bound to have you know, the, the superiority because they've just been around for longer. And yet what we realise is most of the religions that exist are only chips of somebody right at the beginning... <laughs> Who, who started the ball rolling? I mean, I was interested uh, to find out today that um, uh, Buddhism started uh, from a guy who was a very influential, very high-up-ranking Hindu. But suddenly, Hinduism didn't do it for him anymore, and, and he, he basically sought to go beyond the boundaries of Hinduism, and he created Buddhism. Good for him. I mean, I'm actually quite glad that he was willing to seek outside 
of, of the boundaries that he was in. But all I'm trying to say is that's how these things get, get created. So, um, we like to be right. Now, I want to just come in here with a, a particular comment personal to me. I found that the major problem for probably 40 years of my life was the battle to be right, to get it right, to know I was right, whether it was just in my life in general as a, as a, as a woman, as a mother, as a human being, but particularly when it came to the understanding of, of God, uh, the understanding of, I'll have to say, religion in the context of, of theology. Um, and how did I know that? Because I was never at peace. Because constantly there was something that I was being told was wrong that I had to put right. So how could peace exist in that environment? So I, all the time, it was that we, we were never close enough to God. We always had to do more. There was always something more that had to be done. And I found that peace came to me when basically I just stopped all of that and I decided that very simply, and again, we can't go into the whole of, of my journey of deconstruction, but quite simply, one day I said to myself, if Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, then it is finished. Now, that sounds so dogmatic and so, you know, uh, simple in the sense of, well, there's more to it than that. But it was one of the dominoes that I had to decide I was going to at least knock over in the context of all the dominoes that had to come down. If it was finished, if Jesus said it was finished, then it was. And something happened in my life at that point that allowed me to believe that I was absolutely, fundamentally okay as I was. Now, hear what I'm saying. I don't mean when I'd got everything sorted out. I mean, as I was loved just as I was, accepted just as I was, without a whole list of stuff. Now, I've moved on a little bit in my understanding since then, but I'm talking about what started the whole thing. Peace came to me when I no longer needed an escape from my reality. Because you see, when you, you, you're always looking for something to make up the thing that you feel you lack, that's not living in your reality. That's always escaping your reality. So when I no longer had to be right... And even on that score, you see, we were brought up very uh, dogmatically fundamental, which was we were right. Everybody else, come on, it's true, isn't it? We were right, everybody else was wrong. And I've argued, and I, I mean, can I tell a story, Joel, about you going next door with our neighbours uh, when he was just a little boy. I, I, he can only have been six or seven. And uh, he'd gone next door in the garden to play. And uh, I'm hearing them playing with these two, you know, two little boys, other children. And suddenly he screams over the fence. He says, Mum, tell them Jesus is real. And if they don't believe, they're going to hell. And he's shouting it over the fence. See? <laughs> it's true. Yes, the event's true. Yeah. So that's how dogmatic we were. And I remember feeling very uncomfortable. You know, you want to sort of 
hide because you're thinking, heck, this is how, how passionate how, you know, my six-year-old was and where had he got it from? He'd got it from us because that's what we'd been told. And so I had to come to the fact where you realise that what you have been taught is a very them and us tribal system that then separates you. And we're supposed to be sharing the love of God when actually what you're doing is you're preaching separation. So I hope that just helps a, a little bit. So anyway, another guy that I, that I found a quote from which I thought was interesting. People go to church like they go to a tavern to stupefy themselves, forget their misery, and to imagine for themselves for just a few minutes that they are free and happy, but in those moments, religion commits a terrible injustice because it corrodes their ability to think for themselves. Now, I know that that potentially doesn't happen here, or I hope it doesn't, because we're constantly offering many different ways of approaching things, um, you know, even through the format that we do on, a, on a, a Sunday, we're trying to make sure that people can, can have a, a very varied understanding of things and allow their minds and their, their own understandings to take them on a journey in a way that they understand. You know, there are things that um, constantly Anthel say to me, well, I, I never knew that or I never believed that. Our journeys have been so different that even though that we've been married for 42 years, it, it's as though we've had two separate um, God experiences. And you, you'd think that that was ridiculous, but it's the truth. Because the way that I was reared sent me on a particular trajectory while his upbringing took him on another. And while there were things that we did agree on, which were always on the, the surface, there was a whole bunch of other stuff that never managed to get up to the top. So it's been very interesting that starting to think for yourself and recognizing that God actually wants you to do that. The divine wants you to do that. It wants you to, to, to think for yourself is, is absolutely freeing. So I want to just put a little cartoon on. I'm going to give, have some funnies tonight as well. Put the first cartoon on, please. Because I think that this is often what happens when, and it's not just your Christian faith, it's any. It's this, welcome to the faith. Now here's our complimentary box outside of which you should never, ever think again. Sad, but it's true. Because we are given a, a narrative and then we suggested that that narrative can never be questioned because somehow it's stuck in a mould and so we get in the box with it and that's it when there's actually much more to, to be discovered and explored. So, we'll have a few more of them. He's a great artist. It's, it's a guy called somebody Hayward. Does he have it on there? David Hayward. And honestly, he has the most incredible uh, cartoons that, that come on. All, all to do with, you know, faith and religion. And the, the, they're really quite um, uh, interesting to, to, to look at. So, there'll be a few more in a minute. Right. So... Religion strips away our ability to question. One, one ends up not being able to even direct your own life. It weakens people's relationship 
not only with others around, but it actually weakens the relationship you have with yourself. And I found, again, another um, revelation for me was when I recognized that it wasn't so much a relationship with God that I was struggling with. It was a relationship with me. I didn't really know who I was. I I had been created and, and, and somehow formed by the church system and also by minister uh, parents. And so I really didn't know who I was at all. So I had to really come to the point where I had found a relationship with myself. But you see, because it weakens that, People become dependent, and this is why we, I'm bringing in the, the idea of, of the opiate, religion being the opiate of the masses, because it's like a drug that we've become dependent on, because if we take away the system, our lives collapse, because we don't know what to do. We've had everybody telling us what to do and what to think and how it goes all our lives. So what is the system now? It doesn't really matter because uh, what the system is, but let's say that we take uh, the system that's basically the common narrative of the Western um, Christian church. It, it starts with, of course, the system is you're, you're a, a sinner, you're depraved, you're actually, there's no hope for you. And basically, if you're left to your devices, naturally, you will just basically do such destructive things that there's no hope for you. So that's the bottom line of of, of original sin, of what we call original sin, and you can thank Augustine for that. Um, Then, of course, it carries on that the remedy for sin is Jesus, uh, God's sacrifice to appease his wrath. Then, of course, we have the Bible, which is the, 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 the God's only word, for humanity, you know, we might have the Quran and we might have other books. No, this is it. This is the, the, the only word to humanity. And then, of course, the church is the authority which re- represents it all, you see. And, that, and, and sort of it, it represents Jesus and the Bible and, and, and it's what is the remedy uh, for the plight that, that we're in. Now, if you believe and are obedient, it gives rewards. If you're disobedient... Uh, it gives you misery and eternal damnation. I've, I mean, I've only done like five lines, but would you say that about, about, you know, covers it? Okay, so Brad Jersacker, a guy who we went to here speak in Bellingham um, a, a little while back, he calls that, which is the common narrative of the Western church, he calls it the 500-year-old heresy that has severed the Trinity. That, for me, that I think is brilliant. Shall I say that again? The 500-year-old heresy that has, that has severed the Trinity. What, we, what he means by that is, first of all, what you've just heard there is only 500 years old. Before then, we've touched this before, but I'll say it again. Before then, that wasn't the deal, okay? So before 500 years ago, it was something a bit different. That doesn't matter, but it was. But when he said it severed the Trinity, he means that you suddenly are faced with God and Jesus being severed. They are divided because you've got God being mad at us and you've got Jesus loving us. 
But you've got God and Jesus supposed to be what? One. Can you see why it severed the Trinity? I think he's great. We, we ought to use that phrase a lot. We are not going to support anything that severs the Godhead, right? Now, they might be old-fashioned words. Sorry, hang on. Might be old-fashioned words to use, i.e. the Godhead or whatever. But that divine presence that's made up, however you want to call it, of, 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 of the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit, they have never been divided. Never. And yet somehow this, this Western narrative, what it said was, they were. And so we're saying, they've never been. Does this, does, is this making sense? Okay. So, you see, this is what keeps the re religion in business. And so I believe, and I've said this again many times from here, that I believe that that's where Jesus fits. If I want to make sense of the narrative now, and I mean, we can cover this a little bit more at diff a different time, but he came because he was closing down something. He was saying we're not having this religious idea that the Godhead is divided. And that's what he came to say. No, we're not having this religi religious business anymore. And if you follow through and see the words of Jesus, by the time you get to AD 70, you've got the whole temple system totally destroyed, gone. Because he says, we're not having this. And that's what had been portrayed for thousands of years. And Jesus came to say, we're not having any of this. And so that's, we'll, we'll say the rest is history. Shall we just say that so we won't get on with, with anything else? The only problem with what we've talked about in that 500-year-old heresy, what it does to people, even though we understand that Jesus came to deal with that, we have the fact that somehow human beings are still somehow vilified. Um, the idea that we are such horrendous, I don't even know what phrase to use. What was the, depraved. That was the, that was the phrase that um, Calvin used, and this is part of this 500-year heresy, that we were so depraved. And so what it does, it makes us all look at our humanity in such a negative way, rather than understanding that the divine presence is not just in me. I believe that when I look in a mirror... I, I can see God, and when God looks in the mirror, he sees me. Now, I know that takes some getting your head round, and some of you might think, no, oh, no, that's a bit odd, but that's where I am, because I actually believe the song that, we were, that Anth really loves, the so will, I, so will I song, there's a line in it that says, I can see your hand, uh, eight, eight billion, eight billion different ways. Some of you haven't understood what that song's saying. It's saying, I can see you, God, in every single human being on the planet. Now you might say, oh yeah, well it was written by an Australian, he doesn't know what he's talking about or whatever. Or we can actually say, no, this person's had an incredible revelation of the divine presence that's actually 
manifested eight billion different ways. Do, do you get me? So that's, that's what is wonderful about the understanding. So the end result is we can really repress all that we are and it stops us from validating and expressing who we are and how we respond to the world. I mean, what I find interesting as well is how that in, in the West, have you noticed, well, not everybody, but just follow me. We, we, the more westernized you become, we go more dull colors. <laughs> you Look at you, lovely colors there. But we tend to go, we're more uh, restrained. If you go the other way, just follow, follow my idea in the sense of go to Uganda, go to Nigeria, go to these, uh, go to Brazil. Colors like you wouldn't believe. You know what I'm saying? And it's because they have not allowed a certain religious uh, re repression to take place. Whereas what happened with the the, the, the common narrative, it made us all very grey and very dull because we didn't know how to express the divine presence that was, was within us. Anyway, that's getting off on a tangent there. So anyway, um, the Christian machine is, is really no different from any other. It's just another box. And uh, I remember the Matrix movie, which I know is a very long time ago now, but it totally resonated with me about being unplugged because the bait, you know, the guy was in the thing and he has all the, 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 the plugs in the back and he's literally like a grown-up baby in a cocoon until somebody unplugs him and he actually comes into reality. Now, I resonated with that because I can say I know that that, that is what happened to me. Um, because... I was only saying to, to the guys the other day that when I went deeper into myself and I found me, I found Chris Chapman, um, the, the I am or the divine presence of me, I actually found that God was sitting there and basically saying, what took you so long? And he's, he didn't say, I've been waiting. He says, I am waiting for you. Because the, the, like Anne said, the, the two I am's were joining together to create what's always been necessary for me to be free, you see? Anyway, so I want to actually bring this now to talk about Q, because this is the issue that I feel that's, that sometimes we need to understand. I'm going to defend Q a bit, because as we said earlier, people want the drug. They want the opiates. Why? Because they prefer the drug to reality. And, and it's hard to say that because, you know, we would say, yeah, well, truly, we, we're looking for God because we want reality. But in fact, most people would prefer to be drugged than actually live in reality. Very sad. God is ultimate reality. And actually, when we truly find him or it or her, or whatever, we actually find we actually find that we don't need systems anymore because we actually connect with true reality as opposed to needing a system to actually make us feel as though we've 
found it. Did I make that sense? I hope I did. I'm sorry. So, Hugh, I believe, has gone, gone cold turkey. And, uh, you know, as I said at the beginning, I honour all you guys um, for being willing to embark on this journey. And for those who are listening, maybe uh, on, on this, you, you might be asking questions. And um, it, it's, a, it's a, a drug-free zone. Um, we watched the, um, um, oh, the video, uh, William Paul Young, and he, he was speaking and he talked about, um, about what pornography means. Do you remember listening to that? Or, I mean, it, was, it maybe just went past it quite, quite quickly. But he was talking about what porn, pornography is, the actual definition of it. He said, it's the imagination of a real relationship without the risks of a real one. I'll say that again because it really blew me away and I want you to remember it. It's this. It is the imagination of a real relationship without the risks of a real one. Now, what I want to say is that as well as this being a drug-free zone, it's also a church which has got a non-pornographic approach to faith. And I, I love that, and it's ringing my bell, and I hope it encourages you. We have a non-pornographic approach to faith. Because we want what is real. We don't want what is imaginary. We don't want the system. We want the real. I, am I making sense? So, for me, this is what a lot of churches, what a lot of religions are, are offering so we are not offering an escape or a fantasy. We're wanting the real thing. Like I say, we're a drug-free zone and not everybody likes this because like we're back to the opiate, we would rather have a fix. Give me a fix on a Sunday or whatever and then I'll go out and I'll manage to get through my week. Then I'll come back and have another fix and then I'll go back out. No, no, no. If the, if the divine presence is, is within us, we don't need a fix of anything. We just need to remember who we are. Yeah? Okay, so there's another, oh, you can put, oh, hang on a minute, yeah, Desperation Worship Cartoon. Can we have the next one? Thank you. Look at this. Dude, you've got to stop telling our people that God is already here or they'll stop feeling so desperate. <laughs> I love it. You see the guy with his guitar, he's obviously been writing some really very positive songs that's basically saying, you don't need nothing. And the pastor's worried. No, I'm being honest. Sometimes you get to a place where you think, unless we keep people dependent, they won't come anymore. Now, you guys, I know that you aren't here for the reason of being dependent. You're here because you want to be. You're here because you're seeking and you're looking. But the thing is, most people, once they are told that they're not going to get a fix, they will go somewhere else to find one. And it's sad, and I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to say that that's what religion will do. The real thing won't. Because you will be here for community, you will be here to give, you'll be here to seek, you'll be here to, 
to, to offer whatever you can to the community. It won't be about getting my fix to make me last another week. Does it does make sense? Okay. So, there's also another an analogy that we've basically blown uh, in, in, at Q because we were always taught as we were growing up that we were meant to be in the army of the Lord. And basically, in the army of the Lord, we were going to basically, you know, tear down everything and, and this, that, and the other. So the analogy was the, the army. And the thing about it is that there's, there's three, well, four main issues in, in the whole analogy of the, of the army. There's, number one, shared beliefs. Now we've We've blown that one <laughs> once and for all because there's so many of us with, diff with different ideas because of the journey we're on. And isn't it lovely that, that the divine is just leading us where we need to be for us and who we are. Isn't that great? Gorgeous. So that's shared beliefs. The next one is obedience to the rules. You know, in the army, it's, if somebody shouts jump, you don't say why. You say how high, right? And you've got everybody operating to that level of obedience within, within the group. Now, I would say here, we've got such soft, soft rules, soft boundaries, soft everything here, that sometimes you might say, well, heck, what, what, a, what a right bunch we've got here. Because if you were to shout, stand to attention, we'd have some standing up, some laid down, some stood on the red, whatever. It wouldn't be a very good good line upon, I think, in the sense of a regiment. The other thing is discipline. Do as your commander says. That's one, isn't it? Because that comes under control, you see, that when you feel as though if I don't live up to what is required of me, then somehow I'm not part of the gang. Again, isn't it wonderful that that's been released and we're not in that situation anymore? Now, some people think, well, maybe we ought to have more of it. We ought to have more um, discipline or more whatever. The last one is this. In the army, you have a common enemy. Now, I went, you know, go back a few years where the common enemy, well, there was a few. One was the sinner, the outsider that you had to convert and get him in or whatever. And the other one was, of course, we had the devil. And I mean, Think about it. I mean, you, you never knew where you were because if, if you were being attacked, I'm putting that in inverted commas, and you, hadn't, you can't think of anything that you've done that deserved it, then you were being attacked because you were a threat to the devil. But if you did something wrong and you were being attacked, it's because basically you were obviously a sinner, therefore you'd open the door for the, for the devil to get you. So, of course, you had this common enemy, which, which obviously got everybody, uh, you know, um, stirred up to get together, to fight and to whatever. You can see why, why it, it, you know, it creates some, uh, a whole bunch of strength. Now, we can talk about that at another time. But you can see how we've shot ourselves in the foot because we've said, we ain't having that neither. So we've not got the drug because we actually believe we want the reality and we're going to confess and we're going to, like the, the cartoon said, we're going to keep telling everybody their worth and, and how incredibly loved they are rather than the, the, the old common narrative. So what is Q's mission then? And it's this. 
and I, and I, I, I went ahead of myself. We want to inspire people that there is not one person on this planet. We've talked about eight, eight billion different ways that do not have access to the divine presence. It's there. It's, it's in them. It's, 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 oh, isn't it awesome? It's wonderful. For people to realize that they are spirit as God is spirit. And I want to read something to you because I think it'll help. Uh, I read it last Wednesday night, but I'm sure some of you will appreciate hearing it again. It is not a coincidence that God is defined as spirit or that the deepest essence of what we are is also called spirit. Like water placed in water, you can't find any duality in the union. The idea has never been to have relationship with God like a piece of driftwood floating on the ocean and enjoying the ride. The voice of the mystic tell you clearly, you are a raindrop fallen into the ocean. You are the whole ocean of motion itself. And I love this as, a, as an encouragement. Beloved, there is no place in your soul, no landscape of your heart, no chamber of your mind, no corner of your character where the divine is not. You are saturated by love. Lose yourself in the immensity. Forget yourself in the swelling tide of infinity, crashing at the shores of every, your every breath. Isn't that, oh, that just has me bursting. See, that's what we're trying to tell everybody. That is what you are. Amazing. So, we want to equip people to reach their fullest potential and possibilities. We want them to find their I am in themselves in order that they can change their world. Now, can you put the next slide on, please? So I thought this was a cute one. God in Google Maps, look at this. You are here. Look, he's got his hand on his head. I think he ought to be smiling, though, didn't he? Because the truth is he's finding himself all over the place. Isn't that lovely? Oh, it's gorgeous. Anyway, I like it anyway. So, we're encouraging everybody to search, search for the truth. Because while we have the divine presence within us, it gets so buried. Doesn't it get buried by stuff? And we just want you to search through some of that stuff so you can find the I am in you. So, all who wander are not lost. We've been accused of being a bit lost. Um, I've never felt so found in my entire life. I mean it, I have never felt so found in all my life, and it's because I'm aware that I've cut the ties of what I understood as being religion and found just that connection with the, the, the I am and the divine. There's a, um, do you want to put on the next one? Because I thought this was very much speaks of who we are. <laughs> I can't believe you chose him over me. I love this. Because he's picking the question, not the exclamation, which is to do with confidence and this is how it is. We're choosing the question. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> so if you, if you want to know who Q is, we chose the question over the exclamation mark. I thought that was really helpful in, in our understanding our identity. So anyway, I don't think I've got much more. Am I all right for just a few more minutes just to finish this? So the children of Israel in the wilderness, they come out of this awful place where they said it was just absolute bondage and absolute slavery and they end up in a wilderness bit pilgrimage-like, you know. Uh, Anthony was saying, yeah, but it must have been pretty awful. It must have been desert-like and arid and pretty, pretty nasty. But the point is, they were out of Egypt. They were out of Egypt. And, uh, and, and, and isn't it interesting that we can find a way to complain about freedom um, when actually we should be just rejoicing at the dust rather because we've been brought out of the bondage. Um, uh, and they complained and they said, did you bring us into this desert to die? And uh, again, still on this defensive cue, we have not brought you into a desert to die. We've actually brought you into, into a place where you can really, really find, if you seriously want to look, you can find the divine in you. I can hear them saying as they're, you know, walking over the, the desert, you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Was that a Simpsons? I think it was Simpsons, wasn't it? Are we there? Bart. No. Are we there yet? No. Are you there? All the time. Until he hits the fire hydrant and he says, we're there. Yeah. Um, it, it can feel a bit flimsy because we're back to the fact that it, we, we have chosen the question mark over the exclamation. And you can hear the children of Israel saying, who's going to take us seriously? You know, we're God's special people. What we need is a land. What we need is a temple. What we need is a creed. What we need is three, uh, 613 laws. I don't think so, but that's what they're saying. But you see, that's how empire begins. And you recognize that the moment they got out of that wilderness and got into the land, what did they start to do? They actually started to build empire. And empire, if you go back then to Constantine and Rome, he introduced empire thinking into the church. And that is, is what, what we still have to this day, except for those who are seeking to not have an empire, you know. Um, so we haven't set out to build an empire. And I wanted to say this on behalf of, 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 of Anthony, but I'm speaking on his behalf, but I haven't told him I'm going to say it. But anyway, you, have, you, have, you are not led by people who have all the answers, who have already arrived. You could say that symbolically, we came out of our Egypt about 15 years ago, and we embarked on this pilgrimage choosing the question mark over the exclamation. We have an inkling of the direction, but we have no idea of the destination because we're not destinational, we're directional. But if you want to explore, we're happy to explore with you, but don't get mad if the journey never ends. Would that be about right? Would that be fair? Do you want to pull up the next one? Because I think this is a good one too. I think that's a good picture of Anth. I think that's quite good behind the pulpit, isn't it? I'm sorry, people, 
there's been a change. I can no longer help you find, but I promise I can help you seek. And that, that's what we're about. We want to help you seek. Yeah? Now, just to carry on a little bit, and, and then two more things, and then I'm done. Sorry, I've gone on a bit, haven't I? Um, um, a couple of a family, and if you're listening out there, I am talking about you, but very kindly and nicely. The Tuttle family that we met in Salt Lake City, they embarked on a journey of discovery. They decided that there was nothing that was holding them back. They were going to take their family and they were going to tour and they were going to go all over the world and just rent houses and stay because he could work from the house, etc. And so they'd been... Uh, they'd been in Florida, they went up to Maine, they'd been in Salt Lake City. And when we met them in Salt Lake City, they said, we're going to Mexico. It's so exciting, we're going to live in Mexico for six months. Fantastic, yeah, go for it, just do it. And they have, and they've been there for, for six, uh, probably more, maybe seven months. They're finally coming back. And what was very interesting, there was this lovely little Facebook post, and it said, I never thought that I'd want to settle down and have my own home. But realising in doing what they've done, it hasn't taken long for her to decide she wants a home. Now, that's interesting. And I'm not saying that at all in any sort of disagreement because I think I'd be the, I'd be the same. But what I'm really getting at is that you get to a point when you are constantly journeying that you think, where's my own stuff? Where's my... You know, where's my own bed? See, Liz knew. You want your own bed. You're tired of all your clothes being in a, in a, a rucksack. You, you know, you're tired of not having your own cutlery or your own cups and saucers. And so the temptation within the pilgrimage is to want to settle down. And that's when the system will take over again. Because you can. You can always adopt a system but the point is, there will always be things that you don't discover. And that's fair enough, isn't it? So anyway, I'm just going to... Uh, some have le left us because it was too backpacky. Do you get it? It was too backpacky. But never mind, that's fine. Everybody has the right to, to you know, choose what they want. So I want to read a couple of things and then I'm done. Too many words are a sure way to misidentify God. That's why parables, analogies, and metaphors are the best we can do because they keep saying God is like or God is similar to rather than this is who God is. The moment we say this is who God is, we remove the mystery and worship the theology. Without mystery, religion always worships itself and its conclusions, never actually God, who, we've, who we now are, are naming the divine. Mystery is not something that you cannot understand, but something that you are endlessly understanding. You can never say, okay, I've got it. Always and forever, mystery will get you. The Greek word metaphor means to carry across. And every time I think of this, I think of 
of you, um, Amy, because she said, I, I don't like metaphors. Do you remember? Ages ago, she doesn't like metaphors. Maybe she will now, because this might just help you. It means to carry a cross to get from one place to another. I never knew it meant that, to get to, from one place to another. A good example of this would be the idea of blind people touching a giraffe and describing only one portion they can feel at any moment. We all, we've all understood this analogy, haven't we? The only way to see more or to carry a cross is through the metaphorical description of somebody else. So somebody else who's touching the elephant is going to have to describe what they're feeling and seeing in order for you to get the full picture of the mystery because you're only touching your little bit. Do you get me? So that's what metaphors do. It helps carry, carry across. So we are spiritually blind when we can no longer honour another's metaphorical description of what the divine is like to others in that moment when they are touching or being touched. So maybe it would be correct to say that pilgrimage is for those who are not spiritually blind in the sense that they are open to others' experiences and concepts of the divine. As we open up spiritually, we begin to understand things that we were not ready to see previously. As we see God differently, we lose the fear which motivates so much of religion. As we lose our fear, we dare to search beyond the limits which others have set for us but when we try to stretch the boundaries of orthodoxy, we come into conflict with authority. Therefore, we are faced with the inescapable conclusion to honestly long for spiritual growth for a larger truth is to risk being labelled a heretic. So one, one last picture. <laughs> there you go. Chris Chapman, Danny made this for me. Chris Chapman is a heretic and I'm loving it. Now, heretic, there was nothing wrong with it, you see, originally. It, was, it meant just choice. It meant that people chose what they understood and believed about the divine. And that was fine. Each had a different aspect, like the people touching the giraffe and understanding it in different ways. And like we said, it was only when Constantine decided to make a specific creed that everybody had to follow and made a religion that heretics were then labelled and of course they were burnt at the stake and got rid of. Isn't that just so, so sad? So I'm quite happy to be a heretic. Are you happy to be a heretic? Be a heretic. Um, and what happened, you see, with that once it was boxed, See, that's what I'm saying about unboxing God. Once God was boxed with the rules and the regulations of, of whatever it was that they believed was the right thing to do, and they, they had to think the right thoughts, they had to wonder about the right things, if they went off on a tangent, they were going to be in, in, in trouble. What changed was a, a, a belief system became the primary object rather than a dynamic faith. And I want us all to have a dynamic faith. We're back to Abraham. He chose to have faith and move on, getting rid of his old concepts of God. So just one more thing to say and then we're done. It's this. There's a guy called Bishop Spong. Great name, Bishop Spong. 
Bishop of Newark, and he's actually known as the Anglican Nightmare. I like that. He's, don't you think that's fantastic? The Anglican Nightmare, who was the Bishop of Newark, the, of the Episcopal Church. He was in an interview, and uh, this guy said to him, what do you make? It's, it's a lovely interview, and if anybody wants to look at it, I can give you the, the link. He said, the, the, the guy said, what do you make of the theology, which is uh, prominent these days, basically that, you know, the one way that you're guaranteed to go to hell is uh, not to accept Jesus as your personal saviour. And Bishop Spong, who I said was the nightmare of the Anglican uh, um, church in Newark, he said this, yeah, I grew up in that tradition. Every church I know claims that we are the true church and that they have some ultimate authority. We have the infallible Pope. We have the Bible. The idea that the truth of God can be bound in any human system by any human creed, by any human book, is almost beyond imagination for me. I mean, God is not a Christian. God is not a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or Buddhist. All those are human systems which human beings have created to help us walk into the mystery of the divine. I honour my tradition, I walk through my tradition, but I don't let my tradition define God. It only points me there. So, I think that's fantastic, isn't it? Let's just look at this last cartoon and then we're done, please. There. So, I don't want this to be the case. It says, before his theological breakthrough, he had God in a box. Small box. After his theological breakthrough... All he had was a bigger box. That can be when we allow the system to be what we allow to, to um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, to mould us rather than getting rid of the box. Because as much as we get into boxes, we also box God off too, you see. And as we let him loose, then we'll be loose too. So I hope that's helped. I hope it's made sense to you. Um, I, I, I often feel a little bit intimidated because I don't want just my story um, to be something that you think, well, I'm not interested in your story and that can be a, a problem for me. But I'm only, I deliver this to help anybody who's interested. So I'm done. Uh, thank you very much for listening and I'm sorry I've gone on a long time. Thank you.